0: Hello and welcome. You're listening to 4th Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from Taurasiar in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name is Anthony Dockrell. Tonight's show was recorded recently at the University of Technology as part of a series called Meet the Journalist, and it features ABC's Fran Kelly. The interview was conducted by UTS student and Tourist CR alumni, Miles Holbrook-Walk. So let's hear Fran Kelly talk about her career at the ABC, her start in community radio and her time fronting Toxic Shock.
1: Now, before we do delve into your journalistic career, you mentioned before uh, Toxic Shock. I I do want to start with that because uh, do you ever miss the music scene and ever think, oh, what if? I wasn't
2: expecting that question tonight, but um, <laughs>
1: yes, actually, um, because who wouldn't
2: think what if, what if you could be a rock star? Yes, I had the secret rock star burning inside me, <laughs> and if I had have been a better singer and musician, that would have been my chosen career, but um, it, you know, it was pretty obvious that that wasn't going to be my future, so it was the, you know, it was the age of punk. So just put it in that context, when all-girl bands and people who'd really only picked up guitars for the first time in their lives and were hitting the stage, that was kind of the
1: the era. What was it like back there in Melbourne in that period, you know, being part of the music scene, but I suppose also a, a very political time as well?
2: Uh, yeah, it was really political. I mean, it was the band, obviously, it was all-girl band, came out of the women's movement, which, so it was the late 70s, early 80s, it was a really... Um, active, energized, dynamic time in the women's movement. Um, so, uh, just having an all-girl band was a political statement in itself. Women picking up instruments was an, a statement in itself. Half the band were women with kids, and they'd never played any music before. And it was just all about, you know, girls can do anything. Really, that was the that was the mantra, and that was the spirit of it, and the sound of it. Some nights, and. Um, <laughs> And we wrote songs and they were political and the, the, the name Toxic Shock was political. And, you know, you, you, get, the, you get the drift. Uh, it was exciting.
1: <laughs> it certainly sounds it. At an event a few years ago, you actually spoke uh, about the first women's march you went to in 1975 that honoured, commemorated and stood up for a woman's right to choose to walk home safely for equal pay and a great many other important rights. Do you think it's disappointing that then in 2019 we still have a gender pay gap in the state of New South Wales right now, the, whether or not abortion should be part of the Crimes Act is being debated?
2: I think it's disappointing. I think it's staggering. I mean, back in 1975, that was International Women's Year, for those of you who don't know. So that was a big moment. March the 8th, 1975, around the world was actually called International Women's Year. And I went on that march with my sisters and my mother, actually, and my... If you knew my mother, that was quite something. Um, You know, she was not one to go on political marches. um, But there we were with my mum and my sisters and my first niece. Um, So it was very exciting. And we were standing up for all those things. And the fact that women are still, you know, uh, at different times, having marches where the, the slogan is, you know, we demand the right to walk the streets safely at night so many years on, is shocking, quite frankly. The fact that New South Wales is still now, as we speak, um, having a parliamentary debate about taking abortion out of the Crimes Act, I think is shocking. I think back in 1975 and the years after that, the 10 years, where a lot of fights were won, a lot of ground was gained, I think most women thought that it would all be done and dusted by now.
1: And so has that informed your journalism or your approach to journalism at all?
2: Well, of course, because journalists are people, so we are a reflection of of who we are and who we've been and what we know and what we've seen, and that's what we should be a reflection of. It doesn't mean that you are an advocate within your journalism. I mean, the basic rules of journalism to be learnt are about, you know, objectivity and um, both sides of arguments and, you know, drilling down into positions and really presenting things for people to... To consider and make their minds up about. So it's not about you just doing, going out and doing a story on abortion because you think abortion should be decriminalised. Um, but of course, everything in your life, your life experience influences, influences the journalist you are.
1: And do you ever think there's, uh, in the pursuit of being objective, that some journalists perhaps entertain both sides of arguments that shouldn't be entertained. Uh, I suppose an example that is often brought up is the idea of, well, we don't debate whether or not the earth is flat or something like that.
2: Yeah, and it's often brought up in the context of climate change, for instance. And I think, by and large, most of us have worked this through. I mean, we had to do it on our end breakfast, probably, what were we talking, 10, 10, 12 years ago, really, when we started to really actively argue a lot about climate change and the science of it and we started to see the IPCC being formed and 1,200 scientists or whatever it is makes up that body of scientists you know, come to the conclusion that when there is enough body of science that says something is happening, you don't have to then keep presenting the alternative. That would just be stupid. That would be flat earth radio, really. And uh, I don't think there's any requirement for that. Once in a program like our in breakfast, we had, we thought about this and worked this through. Once you have entertained both sides of arguments a number of times for the audience, um, and then, as I say, the body of science globally comes down on the side of something, then I, th- I th- then I think you can move on and start talking about the nitty gritty then of the debates about how and where. Otherwise, you're getting nowhere.
1: I suppose you've had to think over those same issues over and over again in your journalism career. Was there a moment you realised you wanted to become a journalist? And what was that? Yeah, there real?
2: was. There was, because I was happily being an entertainment officer in university, which is the best job title in the world, really. <laughs> think about it. Especially back then when the unions had a lot of money and there was a lot of things going on. Um, yeah, there, I, I sort of had an epiphany, really. And I decided I wanted to be a journalist and then I had to work out how to get from that point to that point and that took me a year or so, um, two years perhaps, um, of working that out because I, unlike you, I hadn't studied journalism Um, so there wasn't an obvious path. Mind you, it was easier back then to get there without a journalism degree, I think, and, you know, that's, I had some luck but I'd also then was working in community radio and trying to build up some experience and just get to understand it, really. When I decided I wanted to be a journalist, I didn't, at that point, actually know what a journalist was, but I just had decided that I wanted to do what I was hearing on the radio, and that's what got me there.
1: And what was the industry like when you first went into it, both within community radio and then moving on to the public broadcaster?
2: It was really... Dynamic, it was really exciting. Um, community radio, I was down in Melbourne, so I was working on Triple R with some really, um, you know, very dynamic people um, trying new things, and it was exciting and it, it was engaging. Triple R had a lot of audience engagement with the community, so that was terrific. It had a very young audience and um, it suited me. And then I was lucky to get a chance in Current Affairs Radio, actually, first off, for a very brief stint. You didn't find that one out, Sarah. And and that was like, I couldn't believe I was there. And the first week I had a story that led PM, which was like miraculous. And it just happened to be the story I was assigned to, just happened to become the story of the day, really. And it was very exciting. And I never want, from the moment I stepped in the door, I just knew it was the job for me.
1: And do you remember what that story was with PM? Yeah, it
2: was women priests in the, uh, women, priests in the um, Anglican Church?
1: Almost fitting, really, given the history that led you to that point. In the 80s and into the 90s, covering politics, it really does seem, looking back now, I wasn't alive then, but that it was an industry (laughs) (laughs) uh, that that was uh, dominated by men, particularly in positions of power and being represented in positions of power. Do you think that then affected the treatment of female journalists trying to cover these stories?
2: Um, look, I'm sure it did. But my, I've grown up in journalism in the ABC. And, of course, I'm not saying there wasn't sexism within the ABC. Of course there was. And, of course, in all organisations, it's taken time for women to get, you know, leadership positions. But, you know, when I came to the ABC, Monica was already had a position, you know, was already getting to be a senior journalist. She'd been, I think, senior political journalist in Brisbane already and then she was working in current affairs and there were women overseas. Um, There were senior women for me to understand that this was a job that I could develop in, no doubt about that. I had uh, two out of three executive producers in current affairs when I began were women, were senior women. So where I was in current affairs radio by the time I got there, It was not a... I didn't feel I was in a particularly sexist environment, no.
1: Did you feel like the politicians you were covering had sexist attitudes towards women?
2: No, I I, I didn't. I I got to Canberra in 1991, um, was my first foray, and then I moved there in 1993. And no, I I, I can't say that I have ever particularly felt that uh, as a female journalist. Um, which is not to say there's not uh, more opportunities sometimes for men than women still in the world and the world of journalism. There's not to say there's not a lot of sexist attitudes within journalism. But I think where I've been in the ABC, I haven't really felt held back by it. I mean, how could I claim to be? I've had a very, you know, terrific run.
1: And you've spoken in the past about the lack of representation of women in politics, and that is you know, MPs. I think the coalition government right now only has six cabinet members who are... Uh, well,
2: actually, they can claim to have more cabinet, female cabinet ministers than any other cabinet, I think. But the fact is that beneath them, there's hardly any left mm. on the backbench. So their representation at the moment, I think, is either the same as or less than um, John Howard's in 1996. So they've gone nowhere. And this is really... It's, it's actually an appalling state of affairs for the Liberal Party.
1: And do you think that's an indictment, that in 2019 that yeah. can happen in politics? That, uh, does it raise the question then, does women, uh, rather, uh, does, is Parliament a place where women are treated equally to men then?
2: Look, within the... I think there's equal treatment of male and female politicians by and large. I don't think any would say that's an issue. But within each party, they have party dynamics... And the liberal, some liberal women themselves last year during the um, leadership coup with Malcolm Turnbull stood up and put on the public record that they thought there was, um, you know, gender bias in their party. And they were publicly said that. That, I think, is a shocking state of affairs for one of the major, two major political parties in this country in 2019 or 2018 as it was then. And clearly the Liberal Party has to do something about it. They don't like this phrase, but I think they do have a problem with women and I think many of them now have publicly recognised that and they're trying to work out what to do about it, but it's all going a bit slowly.
1: Now, uh, I just want to touch then on your life in covering politics there. We see... uh, We uh, start that one again. Can I
2: just add to that? I'm not saying there aren't women within all major parties that wouldn't say their party structures... Uh, uh, are gender-balanced at all. In fact, I'm sure there's plenty of evidence that they're not. But if we're looking at representation of women within parliament, Labor had this argument way back in 1996 or 98, I think. Um, Oh no, it must have been 95, because Keating was the Prime Minister at the time at their ALP conference, and it was a big, hard fight for them. And in the end, they came down on quotas, and what we're seeing now, which is Labor nearly at 50 per cent parliamentary representation, is a result of that quota fight all those years ago. The Liberal Party has never bitten that bullet, and as we see, they haven't moved forward.
1: 28 years covering politics. You speak about the 1995 ALP conference where there was a discussion and a hard fought battle over introducing quotas. I'm interested to know what are some of the things that you think has stayed the same? What are some things that have changed? And and what are the stories in Canberra and indeed in politics that we just don't talk enough about?
2: Well, um, have things stayed the same or have things changed? things have changed dramatically because the whole way the show works has changed dramatically. I mean, social media has changed everything, the 24-hour news style has changed everything. If you're a working journalist in Canberra now, um, there's a lot less time to go walking around and talking to people in their offices, There's, um, and even if you do... I think it's a lot harder to find the people who used to find and those people aren't walking through the gallery either. So it seems to me a lot more is done via email between officers, which to me is disappointing and not as effective. And I think this is really bad for political analysis. I also think the, the demands on the journalists within the press gallery at the moment are such that there's a lot less time for making the calls and having the conversations that add the depth and breadth to reporting, I think that's just a fact of life. The bureaus are, I don't know, Peter might know this, but I'd say the Fairfax bureaus are, are probably a third of the size that they were uh, when Peter Frey was there all those years ago. And um, the ABC bureau is still significant numbers, um, but there's the output is enormous. You know, the online output, the updates, uh, the 24-hour news, it's just so much more coming out that I think you can see the it's harder it's harder to keep up and, and get the depth to the stories. But I think everyone in that gallery, or most people in that gallery, are trying their hardest to do that.
1: So I suppose as a consequence, it, it would then come that some stories do end up just slipping through the cracks.
2: Well, the stories always slip through the cracks. And when I first went to the press gallery um, all those years ago, I remember saying to a, a senior person in the ABC Bureau, you know, it's just all... They just cover all this stuff. They don't talk policy at all. And he looked at me. This is like week two. He looked at me and goes, just leave policy to the Fin Review. You know? <laughs> <laughs> what you're covering is politics. Mm. And that's... And that was a big lesson for me. And he was right. politics is mostly what I learnt to understand um, and and that drives much of your reporting. And then the challenge is to cover the policy within that, because, of course, they're linked. The politics affects the policy. You've got to work out which policy is going to be crucial and interesting to your audience. What's going to get through the EP is being interesting. You soon to develop an antenna for these things. Does <laughs> it
1: frustrate you at all, then, that there is a bit more of a fixation on politics and less on policy? Does that lead to a less informed voter, then, when it comes to the ballot box?
2: Well, uh, there's. These days, more than ever, actually, the, everyone has the chance to find out stuff. Um, and I think that's true. And look at the podcasts you can get. My God, look at the information you can just get in your ears on any topic you could possibly think of. Boxing, you know, whatever. Um, so, in a way, I feel like the, the journalism in the mainstream media has had a lot of responsibility lifted off, it, in a way. Um, but I also think... We cover the big stories, and the big stories are linked to policy. You know, the big stories today remain the economy, remain climate change and energy policy. Um, You you know, these issues remain the big issues, and the good journalists understand the policy, and the policy is tied up with the politics, and that is your job, to get both things across. Not just to to cover the spats and get, um, you know, get distracted by the obvious game playing within it. Those are elements within your story, but they
1: shouldn't be the end of your story.
2: And you can easily get distracted by those things and that remains the challenge.
1: And so, uh, well, politics then ends up being full of these memorable characters who influence the policy that, kind of the political side to it. Are there any from your time covering politics that particularly stand out as unique or interesting to interview?
2: I think the popular view of this is they're a lot less memorable these days than they were in the past, and maybe that's true because the breeding ground for politicians is getting more and more kind of restricted in a way. Um, But, I mean, there were some great... I I arrived at the press gallery at the tail end of the Hawke era. Um, So, in fact, what made me completely addicted to politics and know that I wanted to go back there and make it my career was the week I arrived was the week of the leadership coup between um, the leadership challenge of Paul Keating and Bob Hawke. And journalists were literally running in packs through the corridors and camped out, and, which is not allowed under the rules, but there was sort of no stopping it. And it just was this amazing <laughs> political story, right? That was politics at its rawest and the moments that are most you know, um, engaging and engulfing are the leadership challenges, and we've had way too many of those in the last eight years, that's for sure. Um, But um, so Paul Keating, I I arrived there in a sense at the same time as Paul Keating arrived as Prime Minister. So for me, he remains one of the most engaging political figures of my time covering journalism because he was a policy man. I mean, all Prime Ministers are, of course. Um, But he had some big-ticket items that particularly matched, I suppose... My, my interests, I'm talking Mabo, you know, and the, the way that Prime Minister grasped that decision by the High Court, the Terra nullius decision, and turned that um, really sheer force of character um, and perseverance into, into policy that has really ultimately, it's taken a long time to do it, but ultimately changed things completely for Indigenous Australians, really. I mean, there's still a lot of work happening, of course, but really the foundation of the debates now, completely changed because that Prime Minister was in at that time. It could have been different. Um, So that was one of the most. Within that Cabinet, the Hawke Cabinet and then the Keating Cabinet, Gareth Evans was a very thoughtful Foreign Minister. Um, So, you know, that was a significant figure. John Howard came in some time after and then I took up a lot of my years there in, in Parliament House. I was there for almost the entire... Howard years, Um, so that's for me. John Howard was uh, a monumental sort of political figure because I had to focus very closely on the machinations of his of his government.
1: And I'd love to touch on the Howard years. I just want to start by looking at them by saying, is John Howard the most significant political figure Australia had of the twenty first century?
2: Of the twenty first century? Well, he was elected in nineteen ninety six, and he was voted out in two thousand seven. Since then, we've had how many? Five Prime Ministers? Is it five?
1: Yeah. Abbott, Turnbull, Rudd, Rudd, Gillard. Rudd,
2: Gillard, Abbott, Turnbull, Morrison. So by sheer length of years, he remains clearly the most significant politician of the 21st century in Australia.
1: And what do you think... What was his ability to survive the countless leadership coups that we now see? That There just didn't seem to be the same climate of that in the first half of the 21st century.
2: No, that's true. But in the lead-up to John Howard taking power, he and with the Liberal Party had been racked with division for some years between him and Andrew Peacock. So they were in opposition, and it kept them in opposition, that, to some degree, that power dynamic between those two. They were divided. They were a party-divided. It was only once the Liberal Party decided enough um and then they went through alexander downer that didn't last long that sort of john howard remained there and he and andrew peacock in a sense buried the hatchet really peacock left and he was free then to step up and he was a he was a mature politician we didn't have a 24-hour news cycle so it was uh easier for politicians to stay focused on the job and they didn't have to keep sort of watching their back and turning over decisions every 24 hours, because that's all anyone could remember. Um, But also there was no division within his party room, a significant division. Peter Costello was a treasurer over time. It was clear he wanted the job, but he never... He'd made the decision he was never going to put his ambition ahead of the party. Now, whether he regrets that decision or not, that was the decision he made. So John Howard really was unchallenged for most of that time. And what happened with the Liberal Party in the last few years was that Malcolm Turnbull and Tony Abbott were there at the same time, and they were similar age, they had both you know, strong personalities, strong intellects, strong um, political past, and they both felt they had equal claim and they wanted to take the party in different directions, so that's a dynamic for instability.
1: Do you think our current Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, channels John Howard's leadership style of the Liberal Party? I
2: think Scott Morrison has made it his blueprint. John, The Howard leadership, the Howard prime ministership, is no doubt about it, I think, Scott Morrison's blueprint for how to run this government.
1: ...of journalism... Now, it's just my personal opinion, but I'm sure it's shared by a lot of this room, is that your interviewing at times comes across as an art form, particularly in an era when so many politicians are fixated on serving up these drawl talking points and at all costs avoiding answering the question. What's your secret to cutting through and really getting to the truth of the matter?
2: Well, I think interviewing is an art form, and if any of you in the room... There's lots of ways to do journalism and interviewing doesn't have to be the core of it. You know, there's lots... You can be an investigative journalist, you can be a a, a radio news journalist, you can be an online journalist. You don't necessarily have to do the interview, but the interview was what attracted me to journalism. So that, for me, from the very start, was where I wanted to go. Um, So it is worth thinking about if you want to do it. It just doesn't happen by magic. You've got to think about it. Um, The bottom line to it is, well, there's two or three basic rules, I suppose. One is think about what your audience wants to know and needs to know. That should drive your interview. Um, think about, um, well, listening is number one, lesson. Listen. listen in an interview. Don't just go in with a series of questions and ask them. Listen to the answers you get and be driven by that. That's not to say you shouldn't prepare before you go into an interview, because an interview, you've got to know stuff before you go into an interview, in order to get stuff out, in, this, in a policy type of interview. You've got, to, you've got to have done the reading. You've got to have grounded yourself. If you've got time, the life situation is different. And so for me, my style is to map out an interview before I go into it, but then the number two, but then you're listening, and then you've got to be prepared to throw away your interview as you're listening to the answers. And that's, that's, really, that's really the art of it.
1: Are there any interviews that come to mind where you felt like you really did just have to cut everything you'd had prepared and just yeah. absolutely follow oh, along? Yeah.
2: And they're the best. They're the best interviews. Um, when you get something surprising, because it means someone's given you something or you've, you've unearthed something and you weren't expecting. And that's when you're doing live radio, as I do every day, not currently, but generally, um, that's where the adrenaline kicks in, and that's where all your skills are brought to bear and your quick thinking, hopefully, and your back knowledge. And that's, you know, I've been doing this a long time now, so it's, it's very thrilling, actually, in a live interview to realise that you've got this body of information in your mind filed away that you don't often sometimes even know is there and it just comes to mind at the point when you need it.
1: There was an interview with Barnaby Joyce that felt like it was of that nature on uh, the Iron Breakfast program, I believe it was early this year, just before the election. Is that that same feeling right then and there? That Yeah,
2: where he went completely off the reservation. I'm trying to... What were we talking about? Um,
1: I think it was about a sexual harassment claim that it came against him. And the Oh, party yeah, that one. Found yeah, no,
2: off. I was thinking there was one not long after that that was similarly <laughs> off the reservation. Well, no, that was difficult because in a live situation, I'm in Parliament House in Canberra, in this instance, which is a tiny little room. I mean, it's a tiny little little studio. So the person you're interviewing is literally this far from you. And Barnaby Joyce had, had the alleg- sexual... Um, uh, harassment. S- well, yeah, more than sexual harassment. Allegation made against him. And he was clearly making a run again to put himself forward for leadership. And therefore, the question had to be asked, you know, do you think it's appropriate um, that this allegation has been made and how's that going to impact on your leadership ambitions? And he said, well, it wasn't proven, was it? It wasn't proven. It hasn't been proven. It's been, it's been, I can't remember, but the fact is it hadn't been proven, but nor had it been found to be untrue. And politically, in my mind, that I was putting to him, does that remain a, a problem for you politically? But he I think it was the first time he'd been asked this publicly since the National Party had made its decision. And it was very difficult for him. Uh, he had strong feelings about it. He, they came brimming out of him. And I had to just, as the interviewer, sit there opposite him this far away and stay cool and keep pressing the point and arguing the point. And those things are very intense. And you'll find yourself in those situations some days... And what you've got to do is be fair, not not get angry, but not step back. Your job is to just keep asking the right question, the question the audience wants to know. It's not to necessarily get in a, you know, toe-to-toe with them. It's to remind yourself why you're there, what it is you're trying to find out, and no matter what they're throwing at you, Okay, yes, but what I said was this, or what do you think about that? You know, so that's your job. If you lose control of yourself, you lose control of the interview. Sometimes it makes great radio, but it's not necessarily, in my view, a great a great interview. They're not necessarily the same thing.
0: That's where we have to leave the discussion. You've been listening to Fran Kelly talking about her career. She was talking with Miles Holbrook Walk as part of the UTS Meet the Journalists series. You can find the full talk at the UTS website. And thank you for listening to The Forth Estate. This edition was recorded at the studios of TiroCR and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. My name's Anthony Dockwell, Thanks for listening.